morning, family. Morning. We've, uh, it's been awesome to be part of this family. Um, you've been really good to Nicole and Ananda and the baby on the way. Um, it's been such a good home for us, so thank you. Uh, it's been an honor also to be challenged uh, with studying this passage and to hear from God and to bring uh, what I feel like is life-changing, good food uh, for us in our present time. And I hope you hear him through this. Uh, it's been awesome, too, to be part of Emmanuel's story. And uh, that idea of story is one, a way, kind of a jump-off point that I think is a good way to jump into Psalm 146. As we think about story, all of us are born into a story that our family of origin has already been entwined in. Um, it's, as we start making choices, we start to diverge and create our own path. Um, I'm really curious about to see my daughter's journey and the story she creates and our child that's on the way. But um, it's interesting to see the story that God has written and that he has put us into as well. It's a story that, long, that began long before the psalm was written and a story that will continue long after we're here. The good thing is God captured his story in the Bible. And each of the psalms we've gone through this summer has captured a different piece of who God is, has allowed us to, to dive in to a different element of the God he is to us. The psalms are prayers, but they're also written as songs and as poetry. They invoke our senses, our imagination, our minds, our memory, our intellect. They also invite us into the testimony of the psalm writers, those leaders of prayer, um, those prayers that they were leading the people of God through. By entering into the world of the psalm, that significant piece of the wider narrative of God, our souls are invited to reorient. Psalm 146 is a song that captures one event in the story of God's people and is part of a wider, longer, longer account of God, a story that began before the psalm was written and will end later, like I said before. Scholars believe that the psalm was written by Haggai and Zechariah right after the Jews were freed from captivity with Babylon, or it may have been written um, right when they learned they're headed back home. The exile was a hard time for God's people. They were subject to immoral leadership, an environment of idol worship, and lived as captive people under oppression. But Psalm 146 is a celebration of redemption, God's salvation from exile. Now, God has proven that he is Israel's hope for justice in the justice-hungry world that his people lived in. The exiles were now free to return home, and it was because of him. This wasn't the first time that God had freed his people from a foreign land. If you look at the Hebrews passage from today, time after time again, God rescued his people. Like God's salvation from Egyptian slavery and taking people into the land he promised to Abraham, on and on. There are accounts of him freeing his people. We know God is one who will defend his people and free them and promises to do so. In our own lives, many of us 
who have been Christians for a while have seen God show his face again and again. Some of you here today might never have seen God do that. My encouragement to you is to hold on and wait and seek. He will meet you. Still, some of us who have a history with God find ourselves in this gray area today, a place where I've spent some time, and I think many of us have, who are engaged with the current events of this world today. We see horrible injustices from the Yazidi sex slaves in Syria to racial tensions in our country to the murder of Paul O'Neill last week by police officers in the South Shore neighborhood. The list could go on and on. All of the injustice we see and experience around us leaves us in that in-between no-man's land where we're waiting for God to show up again. Thankfully, this song about God, Psalm 146, focuses on his justice and redemption and even sheds light on those who partake in injustice. Let's pull the curtain aside and see the thread of faithfulness that underscores human history. The psalmist anchor us and give us a testimony that's based on reality. I think it's a testimony that we really need to hear in these dark times. Let's walk with the psalmist and let them instruct us and minister to us. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 146 read like this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. As we look at verses 1 and 2, we see the psalmist frame this song in praise. The word praise occurs four times in the first four verses and also in the last phrase of the psalm in verse 10. Praise is a doorway into which we're invited to enter this narrative about God's faithfulness, deliverance, and his justice. As we're entreated to come through this gateway of gratitude to God and step over the threshold with celebration, we're invited to take the psalm writer's point of view of their past and to embrace their perspective of the future to come. 146 is also the first of the last five psalms of the book of Psalms, and it forms a conclusion to this book of prayers. The last five psalms all begin and end their poems with the word hallelujah, which is why 146 through 150 are called the hallelujah psalms. Most of our English Bibles translate the Hebrew word, hallelujah, into praise the Lord. But for this word to really carry the weight it's meant to carry, we need to see hallelujah as an instruction or even a command from the worship leaders to the congregation. It means let us praise the Lord, a worshipful command for the people to direct praise to the God of Israel. The term hallelujah includes the name of God, Yah, which made it a sacred phrase, one that was never used lightly. Hallelujah was instructional and holy. When these psalms were sung in faith, they not only expressed the emotions of the people, but they shaped the emotions of the people. They were a conduit into worship of the living God. If we were to look at the beginning of the Bible's prayer book, back to Psalm 1, which David White had taught us, captures the kind of praise offered by someone who's young in their faith, 146 
forms a near, like a bookend to that spiritual journey. It's a testimony of someone who is not naive about the hardships of life or about the doubts one might have. Instead, the psalmist poetically highlights the spectrum of human suffering and frames it in a package of praise. Imagine the emotions of God's people while in exile. Wavering hope, limited resources, suffering, and unjust pressure to live the way an oppressor forced them to live. The worst part of it was that they knew that there was a purpose to their oppression. They were responsible for turning away from God and his love and his guidance for them. They were meant to be a light to all of the other nations of the world, a light that would reveal to all others the goodness of God. Sadly, instead of remaining faithful to the one who was faithful to them, the one who covenanted and promised to do so, they turned away from God's good commands and turned instead to evil and injustice themselves. They were in exile because they had sinned. But God came to them and redeemed them according to his covenant to them. 146 expresses the utter relief of a people who were free. Rather than just knowing about the God who redeemed in past history, they were now living out his salvation in living color. As we'll see in verses 3 through 6, the exile gave Israel perspective about the certainty of their hope in God. I'll read verses 3 through 6. They go like this. Put your trust, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. As we look to verses 3 and 4, we see that the songwriters use strong language to convey this warning. Do not hope in human leaders because their fancy plans are going to die with them. They write, if we put our utmost trust in women and men, they will all ultimately let us down. When it all boils down, what we truly need and what we truly long for is salvation. And human solutions never lead us to salvation. We might try to do our best to secure middle-class creature comforts, but those are only temporal. What we need are lasting solutions and the kind of power to carry us from birth to death in true peace. Verse 4 reads, When his breath departs, he returns to earth. The language used for he returns to earth is the same that's in Genesis 3, verse 19, when Adam and Eve broke trust with God they would then return to dust. The psalmist is using this imagery to help us see the frailty and futility and fallenness of human leaders. Verse 5 tells us instead to hope in God. The focus is on God. The human leaders are almost a foil or a contrast to who God is. While these leaders are only temporary substitutes, God is everlasting in his presence to his people. In verses 5 and 6, we're called to anchor our hope in God because he is, first, the God of Jacob, a covenant-keeping God, and two, the creator. The use of the title God of Jacob links 
the audience to the God of history who bound himself to Israel by making a covenant with them. Through his adoption of Israel, God gave them salvation and through them brought salvation to the rest of the world. God of Jacob emphasizes that he's a relational God who forgives his people of their sins and restores them to the fruit of creation. God's covenant ultimately demonstrates that he is worthy of hope. Also, these verses show that God is the creator of all things. God is beyond the limits of his creation. He's eternal in his existence and separate from the wear and tear of this aging earth. In contrast to the human leaders of verse 3, God will not return to the soil once he grows old and his reign ends. Because he is beyond creation, his plans are not limited by creation. And though our God is separate from his creation, thankfully, he's intimately involved in it. As verse 6 shows us, God is one who keeps faith forever. He will never let us down. This testimony from Psalm 146 of a God who keeps his promises is good news for us. It can minister to us because it's still true. Like the people in the psalm, we too have received a promise before our time. And it's a promise made by the one who is the creator of all things. And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, in our world, we're trained to look around at our landscape and say either the world is, was bad, but it's getting better, or the world was good, but it's getting terrible. In U.S. politics today, it seems like we're either supposed to be eternal optimists or eternal pessimists. Neither of these views are completely wrong. It's just that neither of them are completely right. There's a third narrative we're challenged to adopt. This is a narrative that Psalm 146 presents and is echoed throughout the Bible. It's the undercurrent that is more true than either of the two narratives of optimism or pessimism. Trying to measure whether things are getting better or worse is the wrong metric to begin with. If we gauge according to that standard, every incident we undergo is going to tip the scale for us. The psalmist challenges us to begin at a different place. Rather than predicting where the world is headed, we're called to look at the God who will reign forever. That's what verse 10 says. It's not a matter of things getting better or worse. It's a matter of things being renewed because death has been utterly destroyed. The renewal of things can be like fire, burning off the dross and impurities and leaving things as purified gold. There's much pain and loss in the process of being purified. But a new heaven and a new earth are on their way. And the God who acted in history is still acting in history. As we look at this last chunk of the psalm, let's, I'll read it out for us. Verses 7 through 10. It's God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless 
but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. As we look to these last four verses of the psalm, we are led to celebrate that God helps the marginalized and helpless among us, treating them according to the value he has instilled in them as his image bearers. Through the restoration he works out for the powerless, he sets an equilibrium. That equilibrium, equilibrium on earth is a foretaste of the kingdom that he is making on earth as it is in heaven. The list in the psalm is so beautiful. He's going to give food to the hungry. The prisoners will be set free, opening the eyes of the blind. Those bowed down will be lifted up. He loves the righteous, the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless. Everyone will receive what they truly need. The list is meant to emphasize the full range of everyone in any kind of need. The psalmist and the people worship God for the goodness of justice he brings. If we look to the third part of verse 9, we find this statement, but the ways of the wicked he brings to ruin. Who do you think the wicked are? If you're like me, your first instinct is to point out at all the other wicked, evil people out there intentionally doing all the wrong things. But it's important to see that the wickedness can be within me and you as well. It's important to remember that the reason Israel is in exile is their own sin. They had been wicked at one point in their story. They had oppressed the marginalized, and they had hope in human leaders. And yet, the psalm is still in the context of praise. It's actually a celebration that God's, God corrects wickedness. It's praise for how God's justice plays out. It's a realization that repentance is the right response to their sin. Ultimately, the people of God were given the gift of knowing God's grace in a way they couldn't have known it otherwise. Who do we tend to idolize? It seems like we make heroes and champions of women and men with influence, sway, charisma, entrepreneurial grit, money, the loudest voice. Essentially, we idolize those princes with their elaborate plans. Yet, we're called to, instead of idolizing temporary power, we're actually called to identify with those in need. Scripture never says God cares for the alpha male or alpha female, or the Lord will be a father to the influencers, or my, my God will champion the rich and comfortable. I think the message we need to hear is this. If you believe that your success is because of your strategic timing, your skills, your sleepless nights, then it's very likely you identify with the wrong people. You have the wrong role models. The truth is, sometimes God does give his power, his people power and wealth and influence, but he gives it to his people. And he gives it with purpose. It's not earned by them or us. In the world of this psalm, the only reason anyone is powerful is to bless others and to use that power to bring justice for those in need. To truly hallelujah, 
The tangible work of their hands were for the lifting up of the suffering and the marginalized. What about us? We've been waiting for justice. As I mentioned earlier, we're perplexed by sex slaves and racial tension and senseless murders. There are many more minor injustices we encounter, people cutting us off in traffic, um, our taxes funding things we don't believe in, even people leaving their dog feces where my kids play. (laughs) If our discussion about God's justice is true, how do we engage in injustice? The wrong response to evil is to first think of fixes and programs, though that might feel like the right instinct. To rush into solutions might feel like it's the, the right approach, but really it's the wrong place to begin. Doing so actually makes us to be like the princes with their elaborate plans. The right response is to believe that God's justice is perfect. To hope in God for his help is the answer to injustice around us. Though we may not have all the pieces or the correct steps or initiatives against injustice to engage in, at least we know that the starting point begins with our creator. Our approach to justice must begin with God's rescuing and renewing love. His love also protects the defenseless and sets things in order. If our way of working out justice derails from God's agenda as he works to establish his eternal kingdom, we're destined to hollow failure. He alone does any lasting good work. God knows that supernatural freedom is what we truly need and what we truly long for. God knows, and he made all of this possible through Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate victim of injustice. He was a sinless man, abused and murdered because he bluntly called out the powerless, I mean the powerful, for their sin. But, Jesus won true justice forever. Through his sacrificial death, he put the power of ultimate evil and death to ruin. He offered us freedom from ultimate oppression and made a way for us to become righteous. Once we're anchored in Jesus, I think there are some ways that we can respond to injustice. The first response is to be willing to repent and sit and lament over the evil of our world, and to look into our own hearts for how we have the same capacity within us. Emmanuel, we fully entered into that posture for the, with the memorial service for baby, baby Diana, and also a few weeks ago after that week of just uh, violence, where we had that special prayers of the people where we all engaged and wept and called out to the Lord together. We're taking the right steps. Another way we can respond is to identify with those in need. Jesus instructed us to love our enemies and to serve the marginalized. We have to mourn enough over injustice to be able to make sure we're not treating the marginalized as criminals. We need to realize that not all of us in our city or in this country have the same experience as one another. A third way to respond is to all ask ourselves, what are ways that I've used power over someone else? 
How have I taken advantage of a situation? How have I tugged on someone's guilt strings so that I didn't have to step out of my comfort zone? Ask the Spirit of God to bring those times, situations to the surface. Seek his forgiveness and ask him to renew you. You can do that today. We'll have a time of confession later in the service, and then even later we'll have prayer ministers up here who you can really walk with to examine where have I pushed others and influenced them in ways that only served me. A fourth way to respond is to let God make you his instrument. With humility, enter into difficult places and situations of injustice. Take part in feeding the hungry and caring for the refugee, being a parent to the fatherless. Some of you may be called to tackle major issues of our time. Do it. We have a role to play, even if it's as small as being considerate to our neighbor. So those four steps, again, are to repent and sit and lament, to identify with those in need, to ask ourselves, how have I been an oppressor? And then to let God make us his instrument. Psalm 146 is a psalm and a song of praise from Israel to the God of ultimate justice. What will Emmanuel's anthem for justice be in the days to come? What will your personal melody for justice be? What tune will you lead your family and friends in in complicated times? Psalm 146 allowed us to see the rescuing justice of a God who loves purposefully and completely. He is the king who is making the home we've always longed for. He has covenanted with us, and he's invited us to labor with him in the story he's written. We can trust him because he called us his people, and his reign will last beyond creation. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.